Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian John Meacham shed light on the current climate of partisanship and division in his book, The Soul of America, where he examined pivotal moments in U.S. history from the Civil War through Jim Crow to show how, in Abraham Lincoln's words, the better angels of our nature usually win. Meacham, whose newest book is His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope, joins us to bring historical context to this moment. And welcome back to Forum, John Meacham. Hello, my friend. Usually we're in your nice studio. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're in my home now because of the pandemic, but uh, I'm glad you appreciate the studio. There will be a new studio and a new building soon for this radio station, and always glad to hear your wisdom on uh, not only the presidency, but what we're going through. Uh, you are really one of our most eminent presidential, or I might even take the word presidential, one of our most eminent historians. Uh, I should mention for listeners not familiar with John's work, he's a biographer of Thomas Jefferson, of Andrew Jackson, of George H.W. Bush, and uh, also the author of that book I mentioned. And also um, HBO series is being made about uh, uh, America's soul. I want to talk about America's soul with you, but let's first talk about the election. Um, There's a lot of division in this nation, and it's not the first time by any means. Uh, I mean, and not just in the Civil War either. As you've pointed out many times, there have been many serious divisions in this nation. Yeah, I, I have kind of a counterintuitive view of what's unfolding um, at the moment. And uh, I'm going to offer the hypothesis, and then you tell me if you think uh, I'm right, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give my reaction. I think there's, uh, particularly probably in your congressional district, <laughs> if not in mine, I'm in Nashville, uh, although we're a blue dot. Uh, I think there's uncertainty and dismay uh, about the president's uh, electoral performance uh, in the country. Uh, I think a lot of people, uh, myself included, are surprised by the durability of his appeal. Is that a, is that a fair characterization? Boy, I think that's uh, that's quite fair. In fact, uh, I was reading some of your remarks about the president uh, and and about his challenger, the vice president, the former vice president. You were talking about, uh, and I don't mean to frame this to sound partisan, but you spoke about Joe Biden as being uh, dignified and decent, and you spoke about the president as being uh, uh, representing well the darkest forces in the history of the republic. Um, that's quite a division. It, there is quite a division, but. That's the division we live with, all right? So I think that Democrats uh, in particular should take a deep breath here. Uh, They're winning. Uh, I think this is going to be fine. I think that uh, Vice President Biden uh, 
is more likely, far more likely than not, to become the 46th president of the United States. And this is a big, complicated, disputatious, frail, and fallible country. Because guess what? Human beings are disputatious and complicated and frail and fallible. A republic is a human undertaking. Uh, the, the, the marvel of, of what we've been able to do for some thousands of years in terms of building republics, and this is the most durable one, is that we have put up guardrails, we've put checks and balances, shift the metaphor because uh, you're near the sea, we've put buoys down to mark the channels, and all of those guardrails, all those checks and balances, all of those buoys have been under immense strain. Uh, the incumbent president would blow past them if he possibly could. But in American history, almost always turns on the word but. So far, they're holding. And you can't be surprised and you shouldn't be despondent if people behave the way the framers, frankly, expected them to behave which was badly. So uh, Harry Truman, Abraham Lincoln, John Kennedy, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush, all won, if you look at the math, uh, victories that were not 60-40, right? 60-40 elections are vanishingly rare in the United States. In, our, in the last 60 years, we've only had three of them. Uh, and then, to, prove, to underscore my point, so LBJ in 1964 wins big over Goldwater, who was nominated you know, near you at the Cow Palace. Um, Nixon wins huge in 72 after barely winning in 68. And parenthetically, in 1968, 55% of the country voted for either Richard Nixon or George Wallace. So was that a great moment of hope? I don't think so. Um, 76 was incredibly, uh, sorry, 84 was a big number for Ronald Reagan. And so what, what happened after those huge sort of, all right, this is unity, this is a consensus. In 1966, there was a huge backlash against uh, Lyndon Johnson. Reagan becomes governor of your state. Uh, huge numbers in the House. Uh, 1972, the rule of law worked uh, afterward, and Nixon left. And the Democrat barely won uh, in 1976. Uh, Reagan ran into Iran-Contra, and frankly, electing George H.W. Bush in 1988, George H.W. Bush couldn't even get on a Republican ballot today. He was so fundamentally moderate compared to where things are today. So I, I offer all this because, you know, I've just been watching this, obviously, for the last 72 hours and thinking there is cause for significant uh, hope here. And yes, I know people are going to say, oh, Mitch McConnell is going to be mean and, and, you know, the Republican Senate. I get all that. Uh, I, I read Speaker Pelosi's uh, letter to the members yesterday, uh, and she said it was a challenging election, and it certainly was. 
But let me tell you, Nancy Pelosi knows better than anybody on the planet that almost all elections are challenging. What's going to matter now is what does a President Biden, if that works out, uh, how does he conduct himself? What does he do? Because an election is of a day and governance is much longer. And governance is much more challenging (laughs) indeed. But I'm just struck by your, your comments, particularly in light of the fact that you, you hear a lot of people and see a lot of comments on social media that say mm-hmm. that Trump is symptomatic of something more profound in terms of uh, what's it the, what the, the uh, Shakespeare might have called it a hidden imposthume of some kind. Um, in other words, a, a lack of empathy or a lack of a, a unity. We had uh, Bob Putnam on recently. He was talking about the I to the we and all of that. Uh, and you've talked about the importance of seeing each other as neighbors as opposed to adversaries. But you look at a country like New Zealand where they have common purpose about wearing masks and nobody seems to uh, uh, raise a voice about it. And there's something that's very different here. And it's very different in light of what many see as uh, almost half the country or half the country um, tipping toward autocracy. Uh, that's the concern, the darker angels of demagoguery or autocracy that we haven't seen before in such glaring notions or in such mendacity in a president. I'm with you all the, almost entirely, except that we have seen it before and we have to be eternally vigilant against it. This started with Shays' rebellion, okay? Um, this started in Western Massachusetts uh, when the Confederation government uh, was trying to uh, impose some taxes to make uh, the uh, post-revolutionary government work, and a bunch of farmers rose up and started burning courthouses. Um, the whiskey rebellion, we're all watching uh, Western Pennsylvania today, right? Uh, that's where the whiskey rebellion was, when Hamilton and uh, Washington had to exert federal power to put down a rebellion in the 1790s. Uh, my friend Howard Feynman points out that it's it's fitting somehow that the Alleghenies uh, have such a, a big role here. And let's be honest again, I'm a Southerner. So until 52 years ago, my native region lived under apartheid. So I don't know what the standard is. I mean, I get it, but but I just would urge people to think about What's what's the comparative frame they have in their heads? It's never been like this before. Really? John Lewis wouldn't agree with that. By the way, something else poetic is uh, the votes that are being counted at this hour in Georgia uh, that may flip. Not, I, I, I just fell into it. I'm going to slap my own hand. It's not flipping the state because it hasn't been decided. I apologize. The votes that are being counted at this hour in Georgia are largely from John Lewis's old congressional district. The votes that are being counted in Arizona right now was John McCain's state. So I do believe this is an election about dignity and decency versus illiberalism and authoritarianism. Let's be clear, I endorse, I've never endorsed a candidate before. I endorse Joe Biden. I address the Democratic National Convention. Um, I think this is an existential election but I think that you can't be for democracy when you're winning and be trepidatious about it when you're losing. And I, I say all the time uh, that 
one of the great insights of the American experiment, experiment is that we built the capacity to use reason instead of passion. And reason leads me, and this is just my opinion, you know, so take it or leave it. Uh, reason leads me to think that if current trends continue, Joe Biden will have won a more convincing victory than, and I'm, I'm just going to use the last 60 years, 70 years, than Harry Truman in 1948, than John Kennedy in 1960, than Richard Nixon in 1968, than George W. Bush in 2000, probably than George W. Bush in 2004. And it may not be all that far off uh, from where he and Obama were. We just don't know the, the, the final numbers yet. Well, actually, so, just because of the turnout, you have 71 million votes already. That's a record in itself for Biden. Yeah, look, so think so that's a good sign. Now, do I wish do I wish and I know you're being my therapist now, uh, so I appreciate it. Um, do I wish this had been a 55, 45 race or less? Absolutely. Does it worry me? that 46.1 of the voters in uh, 2016 voted for the incumbent president, Donald Trump, and that number seems to have gone up, it fundamentally disturbs me because I don't know what, what about the experience of the last four years would make uh, someone say, you know what, I think we need more of this. So these are big questions. But, 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 and I wouldn't have written the book that I wrote on the soul of the country, if Trump had won the popular vote, right? And so, yes, there are a lot of people who I believe are making a decision that is ultimately bad for the democratic experience. But that's my prerogative to think, and it's their prerogative to cast the vote. And what the country is has to be a persistent and God willing uh, illuminating conversation about why I think I'm right, why I think they're not. And then we move on. That's what reality is. That's what politics is. Talking with John Meacham, presidential historian, Pulitzer Prize winning author and visiting distinguished professor at Vanderbilt University. And his new book is His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. He's also the author of The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. And if you have questions for John Meacham or if you'd like to join us, you can give us a call now at our toll-free number. The number to call is 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. And before I go to our listeners, uh, I was just uh, struck by the notion of the soul again. Um, and um, Dr. Johnson, the great lexicographer and poet and playwright, uh, speaks of honor as the nobility of soul, magnanimity, and a scorn of meanness. And I'm also struck by the fact that when Joe Biden said he wanted to be a candidate for the presidency, it had a lot to do with uh, what happened in Charlottesville and that uh, America losing its soul when people were marching under Nazi flags and in Ku Klux Klan outfits and the president of the United States was talking about good people on both sides. I'm thinking about John Dos Passos. I mentioned him again yesterday, a radical of the 30s, but a great writer. Yeah. He said, we're two nations now. Um, I don't know, in some ways it feels that way to many people. And that 
perhaps despite your hope and even in, in terms of secular and religion, I know you've always been very interested in the spiritual aspect of the soul of America, but so many of the Democrats now seem secular and so many Republicans seem, well, if not evangelical, certainly religiously bound. There's a big binary there. And I'm just wondering about how America can save its soul in your judgment and how Joe Biden uh, particularly can lead toward union and toward soul saving. I don't know if this is going to be reassuring or illuminating, but we've always been at least two countries, Patriot versus Tory, Whig versus Jacksonian, North versus South, slave versus free, industrial versus agrarian, isolationist versus internationalist, uh, Jim Crow versus uh, integration. That's who we are. I, I wish it weren't true. I wish it hadn't been true starting in, at, at Jamestown and moving forward to Philadelphia and, and beyond. But this is not a new problem. As you say, Das Passos talks about it in the 30s. The whole damn thing almost fell apart in the 30s. There were riots uh, throughout the Midwest. Uh, FDR got his biggest applause at the inaugural address on March 4th, 1933, not saying that we have nothing to fear but fear itself, but saying that we, the current crisis was of such scope that he might require wartime-like powers as if we had been invaded by a foreign foe. Wall Street bankers tried to hire a two-time recipient, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a two-time recipient of the Medal of Honor, Smedley Butler, a Marine general, to lead a right-wing coup by calling the uh, American Legion to Washington in 1933, arming them and storming the White House. And if you have even a nodding acquaintance with civil rights, 55 years ago, John Lewis marched into a state-sanctioned instance of totalitarian white supremacist, white supremacist violence. That, that's not two countries. Of course it is. So I, I just think that perspective and proportion are not going to solve all of our problems. But I would really urge everybody to, to keep the full panoply of history in mind, if only because if you are watching you know, the various networks today, and everyone is, and I know, given the basic demography of your listeners, that there are a lot of questions about how I'm out of touch. And, uh, you know, don't I understand the climate and the Supreme Court and etc. I, I, I get I get it. I get it. I am just telling you what I think, based on too many decades of thinking about and reading about the way past eras have dealt with these issues. Well, it's always reassuring to hear your historical voice, and uh, we're going to hear some other voices from our listeners and from those who are going to join this conversation. And again, you can join us by phone at 866-733-6786. And I do want to talk about John Lewis as well. Uh, John Meacham's newest biography is about the great civil rights leader and congressman John Mitchell. And uh, what an irony if Fulton County would actually turn things. We don't want to talk as if, John, as if uh, Joe Biden has won this election because it's not over yet and it's not over until uh, whoever sings. But we'll talk more with uh, our guest, John Meacham. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Thank you.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is John Meacham, and his new book is called The Soul of America, The Battle for, excuse me, his new book is His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. He's also the author of The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Battle Angels. And I don't know how John Mitchell got in there, the man that was Nixon's attorney general and uh, the uh, inventor of the Southern strategy, but we're talking about John Lewis, and John Lewis is someone whom we both admire greatly, and who was a man of, of terrific principles and who believed in the bedrock of his faith, not only faith in religion, because he was a man who was very tied uh, to the Bible, but also in humanity and gets into a, a, a little story. Uh, we got a lot of callers and a lot of people who want to talk with you, John, but a story that I wanted to highlight uh, in your book. I always remember the line of Wordsworth's uh, Child is Father to the Man. Even you write about being a campaigner for Ronald Reagan when you were age 10. Um, here's John Mitchell preaching to chickens at the age of four. I find that such a charming story in many ways. And uh, his mother's going to uh, essentially take one of those chickens and make it into dinner. And um, we can talk a lot here about chickens coming home to roost, but I want to just talk about this episode of this anecdote. Um, he refuses to eat it. <laughs> I mean, it's it, talk about child being father to the man. It's really a very revelatory and wonderful story. He said it was his first act of nonviolent protest was not not eating the chicken. Uh, he overcame a stutter uh, by preaching to the chickens in Pike County, Alabama. Uh, he was born in February of 1940. His great grandfather was a slave. Uh, so slavery was not an abstraction to him. Um, he had an innate revulsion against the segregated order that into which he was born. Uh, that tributary intersected with the tributary of his faith. Um, I've never known anyone in my life or in the life of the nation who personally, who closed the gap between the profession of religious faith and, uh, fairness, uh, and practice as, as much as, as John Lewis did. Um, he, I believe he was a saint in the classical, uh, Christian tradition of that, uh, a holy man in the great, uh, Judaic tradition. He was a, um, figure who was willing to die for an ideal. And that ideal was to make real the commandment first found in Leviticus uh, and re-expressed in the Gospels uh, to love your neighbor as yourself. And there's nothing more radical or revolutionary because who wants to love their neighbors as themselves, right? They're not you. They're your neighbors. You wish them well, right? Uh, but ultimately, when it comes down to it, uh, do you really love them as much as you do yourself? And that's why it, it's so revolutionary. Sometimes uh, you can find your neighbors uh, not only not worthy of love, but <laughs> feeling a lot of enmity toward neighbors as well, unfortunately, in many cases. So John Lewis was really a prophet for his time and also a congressman, as many people are aware. Let me get a caller on here. John joins us first. John, you're on. Hi. I was struck as a progressive with the headline, basically, that just slightly half of the country is not buying what we're selling. 
And I think it has more to do with not the what that we're selling, but how we're trying to communicate, which I think goes to very deep roots about identity and people's feeling of a need for respect for how they identify themselves. So the issue to me, and I'm curious, John, what you think about whether the question is the messaging and the way in which we communicate with the other half that we would love to be on our side. Uh, as opposed to trying to rethink what it is we're selling. This is an issue of how, not what. And that's a marvelous, yeah, uh, a marvelous question. And I think it's one uh, that it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a perennial one in progressive circles. Uh, it certainly was the story of, um, it's kind of the late 20th century Democratic Party, right? It led to the, the the new the Democratic Leadership Council. It led to uh, which itself has created uh, uh, a critique, produced a critique rather. Um, I I I tend to agree uh, with your your point uh, because to me, and I'm not a I'm not a partisan person. I'm not a party operative. But but I'll just tell you as a citizen what I think. I think we've always grown stronger the more widely we've opened our arms. Uh, a phrase I use all the time is from Seneca Falls to Selma to Stonewall, America's been at her best when we've actually lived up to the notion that in fact, equality has to sit at the heart of the national experiment. And then we can argue about details. But I believe that there's a way to speak in an American vernacular, a, a, a vernacular of common good uh, that links what are now seen of it's seen as progressive causes. Which I mean, is is it is saving the climate for posterity? You know, blue or red? I mean, it shouldn't be, but it feels that way. Um, but I, I believe that if you, if you believe in the big things that I believe vice president Biden believes in, and I know that the speaker of the house believes in, uh, I think that one way to do it is to talk about it in a way that links Americans doing big and bold things with D-Day, with going to the moon with finding the polio vaccine, uh, link it to moments that seem to be uncontroversial, uh, at least in memory, and, and make the case that way. And, and as you say, recognize the dignity of every person. You can't be uh, for, for the dignity of every person and then look at people who support the president uh, disdainfully. Uh, it just doesn't work. Um, and now what I often get, what if, if I say something like that is people on the progressive side, might, someone on that side might come back and say, but they think we're all socialists. Um, yeah, but okay. And I would say the same thing. And I do say the same thing when I'm, you know, in a deep red state. One of my goals in life is to, if I'm in Alabama, I say the same thing I say if I'm in um, San Francisco. Because uh, I think that's, I think there's a, a kind of intellectual honesty and integrity that is required if we're going to get 
to the 51, 52% to do these big things. And parenthetically, that's the number. I say it's, it's kind of a, I write, it's, it's in this book I wrote a couple of years ago, uh, and I, I say it a lot. When I talk about the soul of the country, I don't mean that it's all good or all bad. Soul in, in Hebrew and in Greek means breath or life. And I think that the soul is really best understood as an arena of contention between our better angels and our worst instincts. And I know in my own life, if in the course of a day, I do the right thing 51% of the time, that's a hell of a good day. And I don't have that many. And I think the same, therefore, is understandably true in the life of a country that is the sum of its parts. Well, you certainly know how to see both sides, uh, and I want to give you kudos on that score. I mean, you've taken a position that's unpopular, certainly on the left, that uh, so many statues of people like uh, Washington and Jefferson and uh, those who were slave owners uh, maybe ought to stay. Uh, there's a, a statue I think you wrote that's uh, across from Jefferson and Martin Luther King and a uh, statue of Frederick Douglass, uh, Harriet Tubman. There ought to be more additive than taking away. Uh, but let me read a comment that's come in about John Lewis. <laughs> Can I, can I, I mean, just one second, because yeah. you used a phrase that unfortunately has become uh, problematic about both sides. I, I don't necessarily reflexively see merit in both sides. That, I'm not talking that, about uh, Donald Trump's politics here. I'm talking about humanity, I think, more than, uh, than, than the politics. Say, yeah. And I would just say, and not every issue has to, I, I just, this is an important thing, I think, as we, as we, um, as we try to figure out what how we're going to continue to, we as a people are going to talk about these things. I don't think that there is a Republic, a, a valid view on this side and an equally valid view on that side. I think that's a mistake that we've made as a journalistic culture for a long time. What I try to see is not necessarily both sides, but I try to see the situation and make the best argument I can based on the facts of that situation. Fair enough. Let me read this comment about John Lewis from a listener who writes, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called John Lewis the conscience of Congress, but Representative Lewis refused to recognize the legitimacy of not only the 2000, but also the 2004 election of George W. Bush as president. Doesn't he bear some of the blame for where we are today with the legitimacy of every presidential election being endlessly questioned? Does John Lewis bear the responsibility? I think that's the question of the listener, yeah. Uh... No, no, he doesn't. Um, because his view was, um, A, he was acting according to his individual conscience, which is what Americans are supposed to do. Um, I don't think 2004 actually is true. He, he was unhappy about 2000 and about 2016 and declined to attend those two inaugurations. But in a sign of what John Lewis was capable of, he arranged for George W. Bush to speak at his funeral because he wanted to send the signal that he had engaged with George W. Bush when he was president and Bush, both in terms of renewing the Voting Rights Act uh, in uh, doing legislation that extended the deadline for civil rights cold cases and the uh, National Museum of uh, African-American History and Culture was really brought into being in uh, realization uh, because of George W. Bush and particularly Laura Bush. And so 
John Lewis saw history whole. And I think that's what we have to do. And we'll bring another caller aboard. Chitan, join us from Sacramento. Good morning. Hi, I'm Tritown. I'm glad to join the conversation. I'm glad 2000 elections have been brought up, and our distinguished author is trying to open the eyes of some of our fellow Americans. And so I'm speaking to some of our fellow Americans that believe in the rule of law when I want to remind ourselves of a frighteningly dangerous and illegal thing that took place during the 2000 elections. when they're advocating the election vote in Florida, some folks came in from Washington who uh, pretended to be citizens but uh, broke up that counting of the vote, apparently. And then it apparently went to the Supreme Court, even though now we know it has to go to an earlier court before it can go to the Supreme Court. So that's what I'm just trying to remind our fellow Americans that believe in the rule of law to beware of this uh, so that it doesn't happen again. Thank you for letting me speak to you, because I come from a family of abolitionists, and I appear on stage singing a song about how my great-grandfather had a secret uh, term that he used to let people know that uh, slaves were in the neighborhood that needed uh, help. Thank you for taking my All right, well, I thank you for the call, and it sort of connects to an email from a listener named Joni who writes... uh, I believe the reason for the alarming increase in the number of people who voted for Trump is racism. John Lewis understood this and fought his entire adult life to fight the ravages and inheritance of racism. Trump also knows and exploits this and has reached Americans who foment this system. John Meacham. Race is fundamental to our politics and our identity, our history, unquestionably. Um, I think that one of the legacies of the incumbent president is going to be the exacerbation of racial strife and anxiety and fear in this country. Um, it's one of the many reasons that uh, I endorsed his opponent and and believe that uh, ending this presidency <clears throat> is important. Uh, and I would add that no single election No single piece of legislation is going to uh, be sufficient to confront the the long, tragic, complicated, and painful, and living, living legacy of racism in this country. And a question from a historical perspective uh, for you, John Meacham, from a listener named Daniel, who says, have we ever so rejected science or believed in hoaxes, rumors, and conspiracies as much as we do now? And I assume he's alluding to the president of the United States. Yeah. uh, You know, Richard Hofstetter, uh, whom I know whose work you know, um, wrote a marvelous uh, series of essays called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life. not the best title, uh, <laughs> but um, an, import, an important argument. Um, I think this is a besetting problem. Uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad it was raised because I'm fascinated by uh, the skepticism of not even, we're not talking about nuclear science here. We're talking about infectious diseases, which doesn't, you know, we all are supposed to basically understand because of, say, the cold, um, the 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 skepticism about masks, the uh, the skepticism about expertise, 
is a deep uh, populist uh, uh, reservoir uh, uh, in American life. It is flowing right now. Uh, it is very much uh, prominent. And I think that's in, in part, it's hard to tell whether Trump is a symptom or a cause here, but he is certainly an exacerbating factor. And it's one place in particular, I think, that what I would think of as calm and reason-based presidential leadership will will help uh, change. And here's just a stray thought. This is kind of a barstool uh, pundit thought, but and I have no evidence for it. So just take it for for what it's worth. I think that if Biden prevails and he summons the governors and the mayors to uh, mandate masks, I think you're going to see a lot of Republican governors and mayors secretly relieved that they can blame him, but still do it (laughs) because they know they know that it's the right thing to do. As long as you're doing some prognosticating, we've got only a few minutes left. I'd like you to respond to a listener named Namiko who says, and this is a big question, Trump has exposed the dark underbelly of America that has always been there. I just wonder what America will look like post-Trump. Well, let's get to the post-Trump part. Uh, uh, Winston Churchill used to say in uh, meetings during World War II when people would say, I want to talk about the post-war order he would quote a, a British uh, cookbook. The recipe was for rabbit stew. And the first thing was catch the rabbit. Uh, <laughs> so let, let's get to, let's get to post Trump and, and press on, right? We, we know what to do. We, we know, I say we, uh, this is a dispiriting and dispirited time, doubtless. Uh, I have gone up and down uh, my mood about these things. And actually, I'm grateful for the chance to talk to you because I kind of woke up this morning and my historical uh, uh, muscle memory kicked in, in a way. And I started thinking about, you know, John Kennedy saved us from Armageddon, uh, was dragged into the civil rights struggle, but, but got there, uh, launched us uh, into modernity in, 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 in important ways, and he barely won. And it's quite possible that, that when all the votes are counted, Joe Biden will have won a more distant victory. On that note of hope, John Meacham, always good to have you with us. Appreciate and thank you for being part of the program this morning. Thank you, my friend. That's John Meacham, and his new book is called This Truth is Marching Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. You're listening to Forum on KQED, and stay safe in this pandemic, please. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.